Welcome to the Chalk Talk Gym podcast, where we explore insights into healthcare that help uncover new opportunities for growth and success. I'm your host, Jim Jordan. Our guest today is Cynthia Thurlow. She's an experienced nurse practitioner turned health and wellness entrepreneur. She recognized major gaps in the current sickness-focused medical system, particularly for women's health issues and the need for personalized treatment plans. After becoming frustrated with these limitations, Cynthia left clinical practice to empower women and educate clinicians on lifestyle medicine to address root causes and prevent chronic diseases like obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Cynthia provides thoughtful criticism of today's prevailing acute care models while offering hope through upstream prevention. She helps clinicians move beyond reactive treatments to understand the interconnected body systems and leverage tools like intermittent fasting and functional nutrition to transform patient care. So Cynthia, what prompted your professional evolution into the entrepreneurial and education space to drive positive change? Thanks, James. So I am a traditional allopathic trained nurse practitioner that took a leap of faith eight years ago, left clinical medicine to start my own business. So I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm a podcast organizer. I'm now a thought leader in the intermittent fasting metabolic health space. I appreciate that. I can share with you because my wife does not mind that she's got Hashimoto's and that you realize that Doctors are really trained about two weeks when you talk to them on this topic. And that she went for years with various issues until she found out. I go to, I started going to a wellness doctor on my own in my 40s. And I was talking about my wife and he's, my wife has this issue. We can fix this in two minutes, right? And so it was about having the appropriate compounded medication that matches what she's doing. And what's shocking is just with all the doctors she saw, all the endocrinologists, all the specialists. So I think this is an important topic. But I, I do want to share before we begin, you do have a very typical healthcare background, just so our audience appreciates your perspective. So you're a functional nutritionist and you're undergraduate and you have a master's and a nurse practitioner. Am I correct? At my first undergraduate degree, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Foreign Affairs. I was pre-law and then I decided to take pre-med classes and found my way into the only way you can become a nurse practitioner is you have to have a nursing mm-hmm. undergraduate degree. So I did a dual degree program at that time. The terminal degree for nurse practitioners was a master's. So I went to Hopkins and spent seven years there and then pivoted to where I went from there, which was cardiology and ear medicine. So I was going to say, so you went from a medical center into cardiology, which is just a great background to be able to talk about this. So when did you decide that you were going to leave and, and make this choice? Was it a transformation you made on yourself first and you said no one's talking about this? Or It's a great question. So around 2010, I have two children who are otherwise very healthy, but my oldest son has life-threatening food allergies. And so when the allergist said to me after testing him, carry an EpiPen and pray, For anyone that's listening that has a child that has life-threatening food allergies, even with all my medical training, I had seen so much anaphylactic shock in the ER. I had seen people who died of food-related issues that made me very fearful, and that's not my personality. And so I spent several years trying to better understand what's changed in our food supply, 
what has changed in the way that we treat children that is contributing to why we're seeing escalating rates of food allergies and food sensitivities. And then I read a pivotal book for me. It was a book by Robin O'Brien called The Unhealthy Truth. And I was so angry when I read that book. That book changed everything for me. It really opened up my eyes to what has changed in the food supply, the impact of lobbyists and processed foods and the interrelationships between the NIH, the FDA, and all these organizations that are heavily influencing not just the way we eat, but our policies as it pertains to to healthcare. And from there, I started to question a whole lot more. So I would go to work as an NP in cardiology, and I would see patients in the hospital's office, and I was always towing the evidence-based medicine party line. I never deviated from it. I was, I am a very good nurse practitioner, and I had very sick patients and a lot of respect for my physician colleagues. But over the years, I started to question a great deal of our focusing in on symptoms and not really focusing in on root causes, not looking at lifestyle as medicine. And I think the second thing that happened for me was the typical early 40s woman that really got stuck. I had never had a weight problem. I'd never been weight loss resistant. And all of a sudden, I couldn't sleep well. I had really heavy periods. I had anxiety that I'd never experienced before. My typical GYN just gaslit me and said, Cynthia, this is just the way things are. Mm-hmm. Never bothered to check a full thyroid panel, never offered me any other options other than oral contraceptives, an IUD, an ablation, or I'm done having kids do a hysterectomy, and not really understanding what was happening in my body in perimenopause. And so my feeling was, if I didn't understand, how could I expect my patients to understand what was happening in their bodies? And so I I really got to a point where I was no longer intellectually growing in that role. And let me be clear, my practice was so good to me. I got it whittled down to working two days a week and they were still supportive of me and were willing to make every accommodation. And I said to my husband, I'm no longer growing intellectually. And that was a huge problem. I had such a stressful job that it was making my symptoms worse and not better. And so in 2016, I woke up one morning and I said to my husband, I'm done. And he, and I'm married to an engineer, very fiscally conservative man who has, is always thinking about the bottom line. And he said, what do you mean you don't want to do this anymore? You've got all this training. You went to this big university. And I said, I'm not happy doing this anymore. And I feel like I'm a fake and a phony when I go to work. And so I left clinical medicine. April 1st, 2016 was my turning point. And I told my husband, I have zero doubt, even without a business plan, that I'm going to be successful, whatever the next thing is. And so within 18 months, I was not only replacing, tripling what I had made before, but feeling like I was making a larger impact. And for me, it's incredibly validating because what I started to realize is that I was one of thousands of women that were experiencing exactly the same thing in this traditional allopathic model And when we really took the time to thoughtfully examine sleep and stress management and anti-inflammatory nutrition and the right types of exercise, all of a sudden, that transitional period from perimenopause into menopause wasn't nearly as arduous as it had been. And so on a lot of different levels, every decision that I made retrospectively now makes sense, but the time seemed a little haphazard. But the one thing I will tell you is, Almost every day on social media or by emails, nurses, PAs, physicians, nurse practitioners, other advanced practice nurses will say, I want to do what you're doing. 
because we have a broken model, because I feel like I'm not as effective as I could be. And to me, I think I was riding a wave of awareness, although at the time I didn't fully appreciate it, that this root cause functional integrative medicine approach is taking the best of allopathic medicine and evolving beyond what we know. Let me be very clear. There's still a need for allopathic medicine. Five years ago, I had a ruptured appendix. I was died. Had there not been really good emergent, urgent surgical care, I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you. But in terms of prevention, we really, as allopathic trained providers, do a really crummy job. That's why we're seeing a $400 billion a year industry that is solely focused just on type 2 diabetes and metabolic disease. And the numbers are not getting better. They're getting worse. Just in the past eight years, the metabolic health crisis is evolving and it's getting worse. And certainly the pandemic didn't do us any benefits in that area as well. For me, it's, it, it, I'm with great privilege that I'm able to be in a position now where I can impact more lives than I ever did working for this very large practice in Washington, D.C. for a very long period of time. I get to impact more lives now, and not just in the medical community, but outside the medical community, helping other people, encouraging other people to not subscribe to these limiting beliefs about aging that I think not just women deal with, but men deal with as well. Absolutely. I I think that my friends who are doctors and nurses that tend to leave their primary job, they either go inside to industry or they go upstream because they want to help more people. And I think in your case, you've moved upstream and, and realized that metabolic system contributes to a lot of diseases, right? And so I think we tend to be very acute focused. I'm actually working with a group of professors at the, they haven't put in their grant yet, but it's a, it's all about learning cell biology and recognizing that the metabolic system, the immune system, the cardiovascular system are all connected. Mm-hmm. And so I think that probably leads us into why did you move towards fasting? Because there's a lot of metabolic stuff you could have done, right? Yeah. No, I, so it's interesting. And if you ask most people why they look at intermittent fasting as a strategy, it's because they want to change body composition. They want to lose weight. And I was that early 40s woman that was weight loss resistant. I'd never experienced that before. And everything I told my patients wasn't working. And the whole mindset around calories in, calories out, I'm not suggesting calories aren't important, but it's one aspect of a bigger problem. And so I came to fasting initially with a desire to lose weight. And I always give Dr. Jason Fung credit because he had written a book called The Complete Guide to Fasting. And I thought to myself, if this traditional allopathic trained physician who's a nephrologist, kidney doctor, is using this successfully, then there's plenty of science around this. And there's plenty of research that validates it. So I, I, as the end of one, I did it with myself. And then any patient that was willing to have that conversation with me, and there weren't many, because the concept of fasting is they think starvation. And I have to remind them, no, actually, it's good for our bodies not to be eating constantly. Anyone that was willing to listen to me, that's how that's where the conversation started. And typically people say, I go to I come to intermittent fasting because I want to lose weight and I stay for all the other health benefits. And I proudly say that I think embracing understanding the way that our bodies are designed to be optimized, which is not eating often, and understanding that intermittent fasting for thousands and thousands of people that I talk to has transformed their lives. They didn't have to change anything else as a starting point, but just eating less frequently, and I'll just put it that way, 
has transformed their lives. And to me, that's incredibly exciting because one thing our traditional model does in many ways is it takes power away from our patients. And what I think patients want, they want to work in conjunction with their providers. They're not lazy. They're not unwilling to change. They just need guidance and reinforcement and empowerment. And so to me, intermittent fasting is a way to empower patients to be able to improve lipids, blood pressure, neurocognitive status, a reduction in certain types of cancers, improve gut health, upregulate autophagy. There's so many benefits that to me, it's criminal that we're not having these conversations. And there are still providers out there because I argue with them occasionally on social media that are still propagating, you got to eat snacks and mini meals. And I keep telling them, encouraging people that are already not metabolically healthy to continue overeating carbohydrates is criminal. And it's there's a lack of integrity with a lot of the advice that's given out. It's not sounded in science. It's probably information that people learned 30 years ago and they're not willing to evolve as a clinician or as an individual to acknowledge that maybe we didn't get it right. If we have so many people that are so profoundly metabolically unhealthy, perhaps we need to rethink what we're telling people about nutrition, what we're telling people about meal frequency, the lack of emphasis on lifestyle. Because when we start to unravel that, I tell my patients all the time, know better, do better. There are always things. I, I will always be evolving as a clinician, as an individual, sometimes apologizing for, the, for some of the things that I've done. I'm like, now I know better. So I want everyone to at least consider a 12-hour time frame in their day where they don't eat. I, even my teenagers do that naturally. It's not that they're forcing themselves to do that. My very athletic teenage boys, I think that in many ways, clinicians stay sometimes stuck. They're rigidly dogmatic and they'll think, I trained in 1998 and everything I learned in 1998 hasn't evolved. There's a reason why it takes 20 years for medical research to trickle down into clinical practice. And to me, part of being evidence-based is actually staying current with recommendations, guidelines, research, et cetera. And that's how I trained. At Johns Hopkins, our professors are like, yes, you're a nurse. Yes, you're a nurse practitioner, but you should be questioning everything. And so that is where I come from as a place of curiosity. I'm like, why do we do academic, things? An academic institution. So Correct. they say, but not the person practicing in rural Idaho doesn't have that benefit. So you had written a book. Did you write it at the beginning of your journey or in the middle of it? Or how did you think about um, writing So I, I did a series of TED Talks, one in 2018, one in 2019. The one in 2019 is the one that changed everything for me, my business, my livelihood, my family. So that talk went viral in 2019. The book was written during the pandemic, was published in 2022. So during the midst of my journey, but probably in the middle of where I am now. And in a lot of different levels, it's really a testament to all the women that I didn't really understand when I was a 20-something nurse practitioner. And I'm like, why are all these women in their 40s and early 50s really struggling? And there were terms that were thrown around that I was like, that's not a real term. Adrenal fatigue is not a real thing. Getting sense. the education, which I, yeah. I sense is what your book is all about, because I can tell you that we were on vacation in Mexico a decade ago and met this couple. They were younger than us. And she's been putting on weight and having all these tingles. And she and my wife still chat. And she never thought about getting tested for certain diseases. And lo and behold, when my wife educated her, 
that's what she had. And it was a fairly easy fix. So what is it? Tell the audience about your book, where they can get your book and what's different about your book. Yeah. So the book is called The Intermittent Fasting Transformation, which is a play on the viral TEDx talk. This is a book that is written by a woman for women and fasting because women have to fast differently than men. The book can be found on Amazon, Target, Barnes & Noble, your local bookstore, but has continued to sell vibrantly, which is really exciting. But it walks women through what research has been done on fasting in women, which has been very minimal. Most of it's been done on obese menopausal women, men, and lab animals. But helping women understand, irrespective of where you are in life stage, whether you're at peak fertile years, which is 35 and younger, if you're between 35 and 50, which is generally perimenopause or average age of menopause here in the United States is 51. If you're in menopause, helping women understand how do you how can you fast successfully? When should you fast? When should you not fast? I talk a lot about nutrition in the book because most, if not all women, grossly undereat protein. And as we get older, we need more protein, not less. Helping them understand the right types of healthy fats, the types of carbohydrates we need to eat less of because we become less insulin sensitive as we are transitioning into perimenopause and menopause. And then everything in between, all the other lifestyle-related factors that impact not just metabolic health, but success with intermittent fasting. So it does provide the context and the information. And then there's also a 45-day program. And that's something I'm really proud of because the volume of women that have gone through that program is tens of thousands now. And the feedback has always been so positive. And from my perspective, these are the things that made leaving clinical medicine so worth it. Because at the time, it seemed like I was taking this massive leap of faith. And the book is one of many validations that my messaging was really needed and certainly has helped a lot of people. So if my wife and I were going to do this and we had the same format for timing in terms of when we eat, what would she and I need to eat differently? What's the difference from that you've discovered? How old is your wife? In her late 50s. Okay, okay. so here's the point. Men and menopausal women. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of flexibility. So for menopausal women or perimenopausal women, I'm always, I always say before you think about fasting, make sure you're sleeping through the night. So I would say to your wife, or I'd say to you as well, are you getting seven to eight hours a night of good quality sleep? If you are, check box, yes, proceed. Do you manage your stress? Because we become less stress resilient in menopause. Fasting is a, a form of hormesis or hermetic stress, so beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. But as an example, if someone's going through a divorce or someone had a, lost their job or they're going through just a big move, don't add more stress to the fire. So managing your stress, right types of nutrition. So again, women and men, for that matter, both need more protein as they get older, not less. And this is because of sarcopenia, which is muscle loss with aging. It's related to changes not only in sex hormones, but insulin sensitivity. So helping people understand enough protein. So when you break your fast, it should be with no less than 30 to 40 grams of protein. So whether or not that's a piece of chicken, steak, fish, shrimp, eggs, et cetera, making sure that you are eating enough protein as you break your fast to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. There's a leucine threshold without getting too technical but 30 grams of protein per meal. My other caveat is because I will have people that will say to me, my husband and I, we're both in our 40s, our 50s. We want to fast together. And I always say, if your fasting window is not wide enough to get at least 100 grams of protein in a day, 
then you need to make some adjustments because I see a lot of people in the fasting space that abide by OMAD, which is one meal a day. I've met plenty of men that can eat a whopping amount of protein in one meal. I have yet to meet a woman who can eat 100 grams of protein in a meal. I also read that you can only process nope. so many of those grams of protein at, at once. And you got, is that a true statement or a false statement? That, that is actually disproven. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon is a good friend and she heard kind of full. She is a New York Times bestselling book that just got published earlier at tail end of 2023. And we've talked through a lot of the research that's actually been disproven. It's over a 24 hour period of time, which your body can process that. Now, if someone is diabetic, if someone is insulin resistant, having large boluses of protein may take a bit of time before they will be able to process that properly. So if you're a diabetic, you may need to buffer still 30 grams, but you may have to be conscientious about monitoring your blood sugar as a, in a post-meal window. But no, that is a persistent fallacy that we can only handle X number of grams of protein or ounces Per meal. It's over a 24-hour period of time. And I think once people fully understand and appreciate how important protein is and that fasting is not a way to avoid consuming enough macronutrients, then people are like, okay, I need two to three meals in my feeding window, not one, mm. because that will just lead to this acceleration of muscle loss and as an example, there are many women and men who are still terrified of hormone replacement therapy. And that is coming off of this 2002 Women's Health Initiative study, not specific to men, but to women. But I think it speaks to a larger issue. Helping people understand as women are losing estrogen and their follicular stimulating hormone is going up, that accelerates muscle loss. And the important fact that I'm trying to emphasize about Maintaining muscle, eating enough protein is that muscle is this organ of longevity and it is a glucose reservoir. It is so critically important to maintain and build muscle as we get older. It is not just it is not just a, a phenotypic representation. It is really a very important neuroendocrine organ. So that's why I emphasize that. So when I talk to couples about fasting, it's are you sleeping? Are you managing your stress? Are you eating the right proper human diet? Are you lifting weights? Are you physically active? All those things are going to be important to help support success with intermittent fasting. Now, if a woman is younger, it's fasting for your cycle. It's fasting for certain times in, in a woman's menstrual cycle. It's easier to fast than others. So all this people could find in your book? Yes. yes. I explained all the details and the nuances. So when you look at the healthcare system today, and you look at this valuable piece of upstream information and you started on the acute side of things, how do we connect this to, to be a, a broader educational component? Even in our public health, you've, I'm sure, heard of food deserts where there's not the kind of food that we're talking about available to people in certain parts of the, of the country. How do we get the healthcare system to recognize that food in this education might be the antidote for a lot of things? Yeah, I, I think on a lot of different levels. I, I just interviewed someone on the podcast yesterday and I asked him the same question because he's coming at it from a lobbyist policymaking perspective. And I think it has to come from a top down. It really needs to come. And I know for some people, this might be offensive, a presidential mandate. We are dealing with a public health crisis. We are dealing with a metabolic health crisis. And the only way to start changing the narrative really is going to come down to 
allocation of dollars to be able to not only change the way that we subsidize food, um, impacting the processed food industry, impacting the fact that there are these complex, incestuous relationships between industry and academics. And I'll use it as an example. Over probably last fall, it was a food compass coming from Tufts University, which is a very well-respected university. They have this nutrition policy. But you start looking at who's actually funding these studies that are going on that are suggesting, as one example, that lucky charms are healthier than eating eggs. These are the kinds of things that came out of that, or this plant-based narrative, which has now become quite popular, but really is starting to look at following the money chains. When you were saying, how do we go about doing this? I think there's multiple ways, but there has to be an emphasis, not just in education for our healthcare professionals, but in continuing education efforts, because all of us as licensed healthcare providers are expected to maintain continuing education credits, CMEs, et cetera, but making it mandatory that people start looking at lifestyle as medicine. Now, not everyone that goes into medicine is dealing with primary care, but I think that for many primary care providers, pediatricians, they'll be the first people to tell you they don't have time to talk to patients about the lifestyle piece. And this is where I think not just ancillary staff in medicine, but also like health coaches can be utilized very effectively to help fill in that education gap. But it really has to be, it has to be a system-wide shift and change. And I don't think that all healthcare professionals really value the lifestyle. Like I know when I was in cardiology for many years, we would always kind of scratch our heads and wonder why patients didn't want to listen to our recommendations about lifestyle. And it's because we've conditioned our patients. The best example of this is the over-prescription of GLP-1s, the semi-glutide, Wegovy, which I think in a, a very targeted way can be effective for helping people turn things around. But we now have the American Academy of Pediatrics recommending the utilization of these drugs that have no long-term research on them. In children, almost 50% of children are now obese. And they're now advocating the utilization of these drugs in, in teenagers or tweens, 12 and older. And I kept saying, where is the education for these families? Because in many ways, children are oftentimes, they don't have the ability to go to store and buy groceries. It's whatever is brought home to them. And so you mentioned the food deserts. That is definitely problematic. I trained in the inner city and I saw so much of it. Families where they didn't have enough money to turn the gas on, let alone have food for their families. So they were really dependent on the subsidized food industry, SNAP, WIC, et cetera, which is glorified processed food to the 10th degree. It's not even, it's like a food-like substance. It's not real nutrition. And unfortunately, the underserved populations, thats their, those are their only options, which I, I find really problematic. So it's not an easy solution. I don't want to make it sound like it is. I think it is a challenging problem. It's going to require compromise on all sides. The processed food industry is not going to like having funds deflected away from their bottom dollar. And frankly, we have a whole nation of people that are largely addicted to processed food. So imagine... Imagine if all of a sudden the cost of Doritos doubled or Coca-Cola or any of these things, people will get angry. There are a lot of people who don't, they don't want to change what they're doing. But by the same token, I think as healthcare professionals, we have to be honest, firstly with ourselves, because over the last 25 years, I've watched our, I say our, 
as a nation, I've watched people get sicker. I've watched people's trajectory over their lifetime. My children's generation is not expected to outlive us, and that's criminal. We have some of the most technologically advanced medicine in the world, and yet our prevention and chronic disease management is some of the worst. It, even the infant mortality statistics are stifling bad. And so on a lot of different levels, it's like you have to get honest with yourself. I, I think a lot of people don't want to be fully honest and say what we're doing isn't working. Even the nutrition guidelines that are coming out, it's, come on, if we are not a metabolically healthy population, how is encouraging people to have six to 12 servings of grains a day a good idea? Let's be real. Let's be really real. Like I said, it's not an easy answer. There's no quick no, fix. And it's life too. I have, the coffee shop I go to is right next to a, a school. And I'm often shocked of how many times young parents are there giving their kids donuts to go off to school with. And I'm not suggesting I'm the, I'm not about to go for a pint of ice cream at nine o'clock at night periodically. But for the most part, we eat very healthy. And when we, we, our kids were younger, we'd have kids at the table and we'd serve peas or broccoli or something like that. And it was shocking how many people didn't, and we're in a high-end community. This is not inner city. These people should be educated. The parents should, but it's time, right? It's time to be able to commit to that. And even myself, a few years ago, I decided as I'm moving into the fifties, I want to make sure that I've got some health and I, I started working out and all that, but I actually saw a dietitian, and I went the other way. I was trained that you always have protein and avoid carbs. And we got into a battle because she wanted me to add more complex card macros. And I reluctantly did. And I actually found my muscle growth happening. And I was shocked because that I was always educated, just protein. So I think you also need that balance. How do you keep yourself current with all of this stuff that's moving? I think having a podcast that I have a variety of different researchers, clinicians, experts that come on. I do a lot of reading. I have a, a team of individuals, so it's not just me, but I have I have researchers on my team. So we stay really up to date and current on research that's ongoing. I always tell people, I'm like, listen, I don't pretend to know it all. And I'll be the first person to say there are things that I said five years ago that I completely contradict now. You mentioned one of them that used to be all protein, no carbs. And I think if you're insulin sensitive, you can utilize carbs very strategically. I'm not anti-carb, but I think there was definitely a time period where I was like, oh, carbs are all bad. <laughs> and I've you now come around on that. And so it, I think that I, I have to stay current because I have a license and I have a certain amount of continuing education I'm responsible for, but I'm a voracious reader. I'm curious. I'd like to bring on the experts. I just did a six-hour expose with Peter Atiyah's lipid, head lipidologist and learned a ton about lipids and cholesterol management. And I was telling my team, I have to listen to everything to break it up into snippets because it's so technical. But I, I think being a lifelong learner is really important. So if anyone's listening and they want to know how to stay current, it's to just be curious. And share your podcast while you're talking about it. Where can people go and listen to your podcast? Yeah, so it's called Everyday Wellness. It's on all the platforms, iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, et cetera. And I really do have a platform where I'm able to introduce, really have the opportunity to bring the very best individuals to the community and do it objectively. Sometimes my guests will contradict one another. And I'm like, it's not being done to confuse anyone. It's just to show you that you can have a bunch of experts and they may not all agree on the same things. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. I think it's 
important for every individual to figure out like what makes your body feel good? What gives you energy? What allows you to sleep properly? Versus there's this kind of, I always say it's this rigid dogmatism that you will find in the health and wellness space where people will say, if this works for me, then it works for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I always say, no, there are people that fasting doesn't work for. There are people that don't do well going low carb. There are people that don't do well doing full carnivore for more than a short span of time. And so I, I think it's important for each one of us as an N of one to figure out what makes your body feel good. And that's so different than the traditional allopathic model where patients were like, just tell me what to do. And I'm like, no, I actually want you to be vested in this relationship and helping me figure out for you what makes you feel good. And so that's definitely a departure from the paternalistic traditional model where it's like the patient does what they are told versus let's work together to find what works best for you. So do you find this a generational line there? Do you think it's absolutely after the boomers? that are more willing to question. You know, it's interesting. My favorite population that I've ever worked with were the World War II people, my grandmother's generation, because they were they were incredibly curious, but they were also a little bit deferential, but I loved the storytelling. They were just grateful and grounded. The boomers, those are my parents. And sometimes they can be frustrating because they could go one extreme or the other. But I do find that there's always opportunities to learn. For my very first patient, I remember there are certain patients I remembered how much they taught me to just be curious. Like patients would bring in research or they would bring up questions. And this is before the advent of the internet just exploding and now there's too much information everywhere. I do think that younger generations have unique perspectives and it's never to be pejorative. I think there are challenges with every generation. Some of them can just be They have too much information at their fingertips. And so they're like squirrels. They get like they have ADD. They want to think about 90 things at once. I'm like, okay, let's pick one thing at a time and see what works. And then not trying to do 10 things at once because then we don't know what works. But I, I do think that each generation probably has its own unique set of challenges when you're a clinician. So you're, do you do private coaching too for people? What is your... I do, although it's now very limited because a lot of what I like doing in my business is podcasting and public speaking. And that requires me to have more flexibility in my schedule. But I do have group programs and that's where people can work with me and my team. I have several advanced practice nurses and many health coaches that work on my team and and they're all an amazing group of women. But that's the probably the the most connected people can be is in a group program with me right now. So on your personal journey, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned thus far? Oh, humility. I I think that for, I hit the wall of perimenopause. I didn't really get it or understand why were these women struggling so much. And then once I hit that wall, I was like, oh my gosh, now it makes sense. And so I, I think always understanding that you don't know it all. And, and I think I always knew that, but it's not until you personally go through weight loss resistance and just feeling poorly that you're like, I am way too young to feel this crappy. And that's what I remember saying to my internist. And it was one of the reasons why they got fired and I started seeing someone else was that I was like this, I'm not willing to accept I'm 42 years old and I'm meant to feel like I got run over by a truck. Like, And they tell you it's not- normal, right? They, they tell right. it's, it, I have four daughters, by the way, just to, and, the, and the, my appreciation for this topic is that as my wife was going through her 
various issues and, and saying, this is unusual. I feel fatigued. I have a twitch in my eye, different things like that. It's like, yeah, that's all normal. And if, if right. you have the tenacity to say unacceptable, but there's so many other people that walk away and say, oh, I guess this is what life is. And it, it's funny, if you were to ask my mother and my father, they would say I was the most stubborn of children. And it, to me, I was not willing to accept how I felt. And I just kept saying, I have lots of resources. I know lots of people. And I just never gave up until I got the answers, like getting diagnosed with Hashimoto's, number one. And I was initially didn't want to take medication. Because to me, I was like, I don't want to be on a chronic medic. That was my mindset. I don't want to be on a drug I have to take every day. The hormone's a little bit different than, to me, than like blood pressure medication or being on a diabetes med. And the difference was night and day when I started taking it. It's like I woke up two days later and I was like, I feel like the light bulb got turned back on in my brain. And so that was step one to understanding that optimization, which is different than how many women and men walking around are in their 40s and 50s that just they're exhausted, they ache, they don't sleep well, their pants don't fit anymore, they have weird food cravings, their digestion's off, they don't feel as mentally clear. And when they go to see their traditional allopathic provider, unless they have an incredibly broad-minded provider, they're being told, yep, you need your blood pressure meds, you're insulin resistant, take these medications, go home, keep doing what you're doing. And to me, I, I just wasn't willing to accept that for myself. And even my husband, who's 54, and he just started uh, thyroid medication. And the funny thing was, he said the same thing. I don't want to be on a medication forever. And the difference between being on thyroid medicine and now is he feels like a different person. And so I said, how many people are not getting properly diagnosed with an underactive thyroid? How many people that are out there that maybe don't meet the terminology of being obese, but are sliding into insulin resistance, they just don't feel very energetic, they're not sleeping well. And the unfortunate thing is our bodies are conditioned to move. And what happens is people, when they start having pain or they're not sleeping well, they get more sedentary. And if they get more sedentary, they start watching more TV and then they're doing more snacking. And it just becomes this vicious cycle and so I think for anyone that's listening, don't settle for mediocre care. No one needs to settle. And that's the message I hope everyone hears. And, and it's not being pejorative. It's just saying you're not working with the right set of providers. And I think that's truly unfortunate that the system has evolved into a lot of closed doors. People feel like they're not seen, they're not heard. Their symptoms are being told, so what, you gained five or 10 pounds, you're in your 40s. This is just the way things are. That's what I heard, which just made me angry. It didn't make me feel sad. I just remember saying, that's great. I'm not willing to embrace that limiting belief. There's a reason why I gained weight. And sure enough, it was the thyroid being underactive and then the subtle changes of early perimenopause and figuring out I had to do things differently. But every male and female deserves to feel good in middle age and beyond. The other one is thinning female hair with the thyroids being off too, which is just shocking. It's once you get educated on the signs, you can actually walk around and look at certain people and realize that they needed a different medication or a different lifestyle. What is your 20-year plan? How do you see the healthcare absorbing this insight or, or don't you? Ooh, my hope is that we can continue to 
grow an army of healthcare providers and policymakers and individuals who are willing to cut against the grain. There are incredible disruptors in the health and wellness space. And these are, when I say disruptors, they're not just people hanging a shingle. These are actual clinicians that are going against the the typical policies of the ADA, where they're calling people out on social media and saying, hey, you didn't even review this review of this research article is so slanted. Can't you see what's going on here? It's either not statistically significant or the way that the, the data is being extrapolated from is really problematic. So I think we have to grow an army and it has to involve legislators. It has to involve clinicians. It has to involve researchers to take back control because right now it's public interests that have more control over our healthcare dollars. I'm going to call it the food industry and put it in quotes because a lot of it's a nutrient-dense crap food industry. But understand that even legislators feel that they are so influenced by special interests that if they try to step outside that party line, they're likely not to get reelected. And what is every politician focused on getting reelected before it? Maybe they've just stepped into office and that's the first thing that they're thinking about. I think we need to disincentivize people to having that mindset. And so it's not an easy solution, but it's going to require some growing pain. Even thinking about the fact that many years ago, 25 years ago, a lot of physician groups were not particularly knowledgeable about the changes that were ongoing in the pharmaceutical industry, the healthcare industry. And so physicians were like, I'm in my silo, I'm a clinician, I don't want to be concerned about these things. Now the pharmaceutical industries and and the healthcare insurance companies have a lot more control, I think, than the clinicians do. And it really should be flipped. I, I remember how much time they would spend arguing with healthcare insurance companies to get tests paid for that you'd already done XYZ tests. They really needed something more invasive. And I'd be on the phone with a bean counter, which is what I used to call them. And I'm like, it's someone that's probably 18 years old who's basically designed, has an algorithm that's everything is a no because it costs the healthcare insurance company more. And I'm like, you're going to end up spending more because this patient still needs a cardiac cath. This patient still needs surgery. And you're telling me you want them to go through another diagnostic study to prove what? We already know they've got burgeoning cardiovascular disease. So I I think the system as as a whole has been so focused on profits by that, the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance companies, no one goes into medicine to make money anymore. That it is not a gateway to a luxurious lifestyle. I think those years are many years behind us. And I, I think that even my children were not willing to consider going into medicine because of what they've heard me talk about. But we still need good clinicians. But I think that the gravy train days are over, largely because I think for many years, physicians stepped out of the driver's seat and let healthcare policy get stipulated, mostly by the pharmaceutical industry and its interrelationship with healthcare organizations. I I think that in, in many ways, there's so many factors that have contributed to this situation. But in talking to my physician friends, That's one thing that they said, we just didn't realize. As as things were changing, we just didn't realize how we needed to be changing with the system. And many of them were not there. I just want to take care of patients. I don't want to worry about all these business-related decisions. Now, I think physicians understand this, but I think 25 years ago, they didn't. I think there's some aspects of that was necessary as someone who sold medical devices and pharmaceutical products that 
A lot of times you have two products that are very similar. And if you just bought one, it's cheaper for the system. But I think that when we went during healthcare reform, we had these technical requirements for technology. And a lot of these physicians couldn't afford it. And they went inside and got lured in saying, we're going to take care of this for you. We're going to pay you and treat you better. And I actually have some chief financial officer friends who are expert witnesses at unwinding those deals because they haven't happened. And to your point, I think, first of all, people that go into medicine want to help people. I've never met one that went into it for money anyways. But if you're a physician that for all intents and purposes, you're in your early 40s before you start making money and you have to pay off your bills, you need to get paid a certain amount. And I think yeah. it, in, the, in the absence of that equation rebalancing itself, what we're going to have is these people saying, I can go do this, make three times more with less aggravation and oversight, and we're going to have to change that. It's probably yeah. one of the number one issues. Very good. Yeah. What else would you like to share with the audience today? Just for everyone that's listening, understanding that you're not there, we're not in a state of inertia. If you feel like you've got an amazing, talented primary care provider who's your advocate, you are that is a blessing. But if you don't, Knowing that there are capable, intelligent, compassionate, smart providers that are out there, it's just finding the right one. And I jokingly say that I've worked with some incredibly talented people over the last 10 years, let's say, and I think I finally found the right person for me who just happened to be in where I live, which is a, a less populated part of the state than I used to live in. And I'm very grateful, but I acknowledge that not everyone in the United States has that access. So don't feel like if the first or second time trying to find the right provider didn't work in your favor, the right person is out there. It took me multiple people, multiple. And that's even with all my information, all the knowledge I have to find my person. And so I, I think on a lot of levels, we have to be open-minded to the possibility that it may end up being someone that's in the functional integrative medicine space. It might be someone that thinks outside the proverbial allopathic box. And all of us deserve good care. It should not just be just for those who can afford it. It should be the same level of care for everyone. It's that kind of healthcare disparity that I get concerned about, especially as I see more and more of my colleagues that are no longer taking patients or because they're trying to limit their practices, they're charging more. And I get that. I financially understand that. But there still needs to be individuals that are accessible and available for everyone because everyone deserves good care. And I'm talking everyone deserves good care. Every single person deserves good care, not just a select few. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you very much for being a guest. There's lots to think about and certainly lots of information in your book and on your website for people that I'll put that in the show notes for sure. Great. It's been a pleasure, James. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for tuning into the Chalk Talk Gym podcast. For resources, show notes, and ways to get in touch, visit us at chalktalkgym.com.